Uh, Lord Jesus, we give you great thanks for time to spend together in your word and for the witness of the life of Gideon. Uh, For good or for ill, you uh, work all things out for the good for those who uh, love you and are called according to your purposes. And so, Lord, that you would use us in a mighty way, but, Lord, that you would keep us uh, in your fold for your glory and for our good. Amen. Uh, I'm uh, a little under the weather, um, so I'm not able to project as I normally am. Um, although this morning, because I've already preached twice, my voice is a little bit stretched. So it went from 7.30, which was, if everybody closed their eyes, it was like having Barry White in the pulpit, um, to, uh, to you know probably 11 o'clock. <clears throat> and the tail end of this is going to be more screeching. Um, so uh, someone, if you've ever heard, a, heard Tim Keller preach uh, on one Sunday, because they have so many guests, and he was so self-conscious about the octave of his voice that he told the congregation, you know, my, my voice is normally much more whiny uh, and, and high-pitched than, than this. Um, and so that's true for you, too, if, um, if you're listening or here for the first time. Uh, we're talking about Gideon. Last week, uh, I mentioned uh, that even uh, when the people of Israel cried out for a Savior, they did it not out of uh, repentance, but they did it out of regret. Uh, what they were upset about were, was not uh, the core root issue of their problem, which was their own sin, uh, their own... Hi, Lauren. Were you here when I said all that I said? Oh, good. Um, <laughs> no, I said, all I said was that it was, you, can, you know that you're under the gospel, not under the law when you don't show up. And I said, I, I need you here. I need you here. Oh, gosh. Just kidding. Uh, so, uh, they, they, they were so out of touch with themselves and lacked complete uh, self-awareness that they thought that the big problem in their lives were the Midianites, and if God would just get rid of the Midianites, then all would be well. And so what they were really upset about were the consequences of sin. They were upset that the Midianites were in their nation, and they were plundering them economically. Uh, and... Uh, Gideon even felt that way. He felt that God had abandoned the people of Israel. Otherwise, why would all this kind of stuff happen? Uh, but it turned over that God handed them over uh, to themselves. You know, that is probably the scariest thing about God's judgment is that when God allows you to have what you want. Right? God allows you to have what you want. Um, and that is uh, scary uh, because uh, and, and we all in our lives know that we've dodged bullets. And one of the more obvious bullets, and I never experienced this, uh, but recently uh, I've heard this come up a lot where someone has gone back to their um, college reunion and they dated somebody there in college for a long time and they were maybe even engaged to them, if not close to being engaged, and they look at what their life might have been. Now, at the time, they were probably on their knees like Garth Brooks saying, you know, God, please let me marry this person. Uh, But God saw fit not to have that. And now in hindsight, you're looking back and say, thank God I did not marry that person because your life would be very different. And so God in his mercy will oftentimes um, thwart that and not give you what you want. But sometimes his judgment, he will get you exactly, he'll he'll let you have what you want. And that's what's happened here uh, amongst the Israelites. And what they're upset about are the consequences of their sin, the outgrowth of it, but not the sin itself. Even so, even so, God begins to deliver them before they even repented. Right? So they express regret. So what God does is God sends the people of Israel uh, not a savior, but a preacher who preaches this very condemning sermon, uh, and everybody you know, puts on their Sunday school faces and says, oh, this is terrible, you're right. Uh, they really didn't believe that. But even so, even though they've not even moved to a place of repentance, this is how merciful God is. 
he begins to deliver them by raising up Gideon. So even before they were on board with the program, where they even felt like, okay, what we, uh, God did it anyway. He began to save them even before they repented. And it turns out that it's through God's love manifested through Gideon that uh, they see God's mercy and they do begin to repent and they do begin to coalesce and come together as a people to drive the Midianites out. But along the way, one of the big themes of Judges, and it really is a meta-theme in all of Scripture, is that God uses the little things of the world to shame the big. He uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Right? Uh, this is from Genesis to Revelation. In Genesis, uh, God forms us of what? What does he make us out of? Dirt, right? He doesn't make us out of platinum. He doesn't make us out of gold uh, or anything semi-precious. He makes us out of a very common substance, right? So that nobody can really hang their hats on saying, well, you know, I'm, I'm really something. Uh, when it turns out that we're all made of dirt, now, in one sense, that might seem humiliating, uh, but in another sense, God uses those of us who are very common and made out of a common substance to do amazing things. And uh, because we are human, uh, the way he uses us, uh, no one can say, oh, it's because of Gideon's leadership skills. Uh, it's because of uh, Gideon's charisma uh, that all of this is happening. All people can say is, holy smokes, it's the Lord. That's where they're left. Uh, continuing into the New Testament, uh, remember when Jesus calls um, um, Philip and Nathaniel, and Philip and Nathaniel are having the interaction, and uh, they say, you know, we found, uh, we found the Messiah. He's from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Right? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And the answer is no. Nothing good can come out of Nazareth, but out of one of the lowliest villages that gets almost no mention in ancient Near Eastern history books, Nazareth, um, out of this no-name place uh, comes the Messiah. So this is an ongoing principle throughout Scripture. And here is little Gideon, who's found in the threshing uh, floor, or in the wine press, threshing out wheat, separating the wheat from the chaff, because he doesn't want to get caught by the Midianites, uh, or in chapter 6 of Judges, if you uh, have uh, this memorized, um, or if you, uh, if you have an app and you want to follow along. Uh, and uh, they're trying to fight the Midianites, who are exploiting them economically. Uh, they were the 1%. Uh, and uh, so God orders Gideon to occupy Ophrah. Right? Not really, but kind of. Uh, it's, it's pretty drastic. Um, and when God comes to Gideon, uh, Gideon has all kinds of excuses. He's afraid. Uh, he tells the Lord that his clan is the weakest of his tribe and that he is the least in his family, meaning I'm at the bottom of the, uh, of the totem pole, God. I mean, my family's not really all that great to pull from, but if you're going to pull from my family, pull from somebody else. And here is this Nazareth principle again. And God uh, takes this frightened man and he orders him to do something crazy. I mean, just flat out crazy. And here's what he says to do. That night, the Lord said to him, Gideon, take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, I mean, talk about specific, uh, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took 
I'm sorry. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, uh, he did it by night. Right? God didn't say about when to do it, so this is when we're going to do it, folks. Um, and he gives them this very specific thing. And, uh, and what is the town's and his family's response to this? Let's kill him. Let's kill him. Now, here's the background to this. Gideon and his family are Israelites. Right? They, they passed over uh, the Jordan, uh, came to the country. And in Joshua, you have this uh, lots of battles and things like that happening, um, trying to drive the Canaanites out of Canaan. And uh, I'm not going to get into that, but that, that's a really good Sunday school class to talk about sort of, you know, God telling his people to go destroy a town. Like, how could God possibly do that? And we can talk about that at another time. But if, in Judges 1 and 2, if you look at it, where God says, go and do this, Judges actually, and good for them for being this honest, the author of Judges actually lists what each, and each of the tribe is given a territory, right? This is the area that you need to go and drive the Canaanites out. They list all of the tribes and the cities that they were supposed to, to run the Canaanites out or kill them and destroy their temples. And do you know how many towns they actually succeeded in doing that in? One. And all of Canaan. The rest of them, it says, well, they went to this town and they kind of put up a fight and they said, ah, oh, let's just live together. Right? Let's start a rotary club. And everybody got along. Is it, is it for the benefit of all involved? Um, so that was a joke about rotary, which I don't... Yeah, my wife's a Rotarian. I am not. Um, uh, so what had happened is, and when God, I will say this, when God told the people of Israel to drive the Canaanites out and to get rid of them, that was actually not a judgment against the Canaanites. It was a judgment against the people of Israel because God knew the nature of their hearts, being human beings, that the moment they got into Canaan and began to uh, you know, live alongside the Canaanites, they were going to become like the Canaanites. So it was actually against the, it was a judgment against the weakness of the heart of the people Israel. That God knew that whatever environment that they were going to be in is what they were going to imbibe, and that is what they were going to become. And that's exactly what has happened here. They all think that they're faithful, Israel, faithful Israelites, but what they've done is they've taken the religion of the Canaanite people, which is, um, you know, every, Baal is actually... Um, not really a proper noun for a deity. There is, there is a deity in um, um, Canaanite religion whose name is so holy that only priests can say it, and so they refer to him as Baal. But basically, Baal was what you called the local god. Whoever you are really behind, and like if you go to Greece today, the same thing is true. Like every city has sort of a, a local deity that they support. Right, so Athens, their big goddess there is Athena, right? So uh, there is a particular god that the people in Gideon's town uh, are are serving, uh, and and it might even be said that some of these people thought that 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 god was their god, like that was the god of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right? That's that's what they thought, although it wasn't true. And what they began to do is they began to mesh the two faiths together. And so it was almost, you didn't know whether somebody was following the Canaanite faith or the Israelite faith because there had been so much mashing together. It's sort of like, you know, when you put, anytime you blend something, if you put two things in a blender, you can't really discern what's what. It just becomes this new, ugh. And that is what we're dealing with in Israel at this time. And um, 
It's not really the faith of the Canaanite people, and it's not really the faith of the Bible. It's just this ugh that's going on. And an Asherah, so they've got this altar in, in the town. They've got the, the local village chapel, and there's normally a big pole next to it, and, uh, and it's a pole to a fertility goddess. So um, there you have that. And, uh, and normally, I mean, the pole was there to sort of indicate, like, this is where, like, if you go around today and you see a building with a cross on top of it, you assume it's a church, right? So if you see a big pole in the middle of the village, you know, okay, the, the altar to Baal is going to be right there. So it's the golden arches. And um, in the dead of night, you can imagine these servants, ten servants are like, this is it for us. Um, they go steal dad's bulls, they pull down the altars, they make a total mess, they chop it down, the village sees it, and they um, want uh, to kill Gideon. And they express absolute outrage over Gideon's assault on the status quo. Because they know what's going on. They know what this judgment is about. And they know that um, what... Um, they're doing is not uh, the way that they ought to be uh, going. Um, when God first encounters Gideon, um, and Gideon makes the case that God had abandoned them, he does something very curious. He, um, he throws scripture at God, or at least he gives a biblical narrative. He says, you know, where's the God that was with us back when we left the people of Egypt? And so at this time, verbal and tradition was very big, and these guys knew the story. They knew the story. Uh, they knew the story about the deliverance from Egypt, and yet, and yet, they were involved in the syncretism. And, uh, and we can look at, back on it with our 21st century eyes and say, oh, foolish Israelites. You know, I, I mean, it's so clear and, and obvious. And even though, you know, I don't think that, um, you know, we're going to go set up uh, an Asherah pole in the front yard or, um, or whatever it might be, um, things don't change in thousands of years. They just don't. Human beings are the same now uh, as they've always been. And um, I mean, I for one will admit that I often catch myself um, practicing a sort of Americanized form of Christianity, right? Uh, and knowing that what I'm doing might be uh, not, um, and I'm not talking about grievous sins. I'm talking about little sins, you know what I mean? Uh, and um, things that really don't affect anybody uh, but me. And, uh, but, you know, it, it's crazy how I try to justify, I know that I ought not to be doing this, but in my mind, I think, well, I give myself an out, an exemption. I don't say that the law is not true. I don't say that it doesn't apply to me, but I think, well, in my context, uh, it, it's different. In my context, uh, it's different. And so um, anytime somebody assaults the status quo of our lives and makes us feel uncomfortable and who we think we are, uh, you want to kill them. Right? They've chopped down your Asherah pole. Uh, they've torn down your altar to Baal. And there's a part of these villagers who think, Gideon's right. He's right, but daggone it, you know, this is not the way to go about it. Right? This is not the way you do it. We need to sit down and talk with one another. But that never really works. So uh, what God does is he does something drastic and has him pull all of this down. And instead of killing him, they give Gideon a new name, which is Jeroboam, which is uh, his dad convinces them, look, let's just call him Jeroboam, which means Baal will contend with him. Like if Baal's God and he's powerful enough, Baal will strike him down. Right? Baal will do it. But really, it's kind of a joke uh, because the answer is the literal translation of the Hebrew is uh, Baal will strive after him. 
And of course, the joke is, that's not going to happen. <laughs> right? That's not going to happen. Um, because God is God and Baal is not. But you still have the, the issue of the Israelites who have been worshipping these idols, and really it's the idol of the self. And the psalmist says that when you worship an idol, you actually become like an idol. Right? Uh, they have eyes, but they do not see. They have uh, lips, but they do not speak. They have ears, but they do not hear. And those who worship them become like them. That's kind of scary. And so uh, they're so, they lack complete self-awareness. They, they just, they don't have any perspective uh, while Gideon is doing this. And yet, and yet, um, God honors this. And he raises up a great army in Judges 7. And uh, they go to get the Midianites. And what you need to know about the Midianites is um, everybody, look, it was easy somewhat for Gideon to recruit an army because everybody wanted the Midianites out. They might want them out for different reasons, but at a very basic level, you don't want some, you don't want some, if somebody came up to the bank and just raided your account, other than your uh, teenage son or daughter, and you know, took the money with them, uh, and there was no FDIC insurance on it, um, you would probably do everything in your power to, to get that money back, wouldn't you? And, or you would do something to prevent it, and you certainly would have a hard heart against that people. And that's what's happening with the Midianites. The thing about the Midianites is they are the most advanced technologically-minded uh, military unit on the face of the earth. They've domesticated camels that can get in, get out very quickly. They have advanced weapons. Uh, and the Israelites are a little war-weary war because of what's been going on. They're not the most, you know, when you're walking through the wilderness for 40 years and when you're fighting battles along the way, there's not a lot of time for research and technology. So you're just, I mean, you got a rock, you got a rock. <laughs> you know, you got a stick, you got a stick. I mean, that's just the way that it works. And... But nonetheless, there is, let's get these Midianites out of here. And so everybody comes together. But God begins to pare away the army. He, in fact, in fact sends home two-thirds of the army. And of those two-thirds, who he sends home are those who are fearful and trembling. Because the story of the Israelite people is that... Um, bad company corrupts good character, as St. Paul said. And fear is contagious. And so God sees the problem with the Israelites. If we keep, look, they might have thousands of men, but in fact, they're going to be less effective because there are so many frightened people here. Let's get rid of the frightening people. So it's a morale move. And then he narrows that down even more to 300. And do you remember how God does that? Right? They stop to drink water. And um, some of them lap up the water with their hands and others put their lips down to the water. And he sends those that put their lips down to the water home. Those that lapped, drank from their hands, stayed, numbering 300. And do you know why God did that? Neither do I. Um, uh, and in fact, in fact, it's one of those, it's, it's one of those that uh, it doesn't matter. That's the point. A lot of people try to say, oh, it's because they lapped up you know, their water like dogs. It has nothing to do with that. It was just God deciding that that was going to be the method by which he 
separated. Because all of these were considered brave men. He'd already gotten rid of the two-thirds. And so he just needed a method to get rid of the other guys. Right? Because going into it, knowing that, okay, we got rid of all the scaredy cats. Now we're really going into the, to, to battle with something. The Israelites and Gideon still had something to hang their hat on. They still were able to, you know, if they won a victory, they might say, the victory is the Lord's and we're really brave. You know, they, there was still something, there was still something that they had that they could hang their hats on uh, when it came to a victory. And so they would be robbing God of his glory uh, going into it. So we don't know why the 300 were chosen. They just were. And again, here we have in uh, chapter 7, verse 2. Uh, the Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Here's that salvation principle again, which God tries to impress upon his people, is that uh, <clears throat> I'm going to take away from you any notion uh, that you are somehow in control and somehow... Uh, in power that you can say that, uh, you know, uh, there's something that I have done in order to make this happen. Um, when uh, you graduated college or, or entered in, into the real world, um, uh, you all had thoughts and ambitions and dreams, right? And we all had our timeline. Um, gosh, these things were all, we're like, you know, in, in the interviews, in five years, where do you see yourself? And I'm like, Tropical beach, drink with an umbrella. You know, that would be nice in five years, wouldn't it? But, um, you know, they'd ask you questions like, where do you see yourself in five years, 10 years, 25 years? And when you answer that question in your early 20s, you have these ideas. But then uh, down the road, looking back, did it ever turn out the way you thought it was? Or how you had planned? Um, really, you look back and say, it didn't go anything uh, like the way that I planned. There might be echoes of it, shadows of it, um, but um, what you see in that is honestly God's mercy, and what you see in your life is that God is in control, and that everything that you have, and everything that you've become, uh, if rather than uh, the product of any sort of hard work or striving, uh, turns out to be from the Lord. Uh, everything. Everything. And I know there are times in my life where I can point to, um, my life is actually a very good example of this principle uh, because I am a life full of flukes. And, um, you know, I, um, I, I sort of, Lauren laughs because when people ask where I went to school, I will talk to you until you are blue in the face about the University of Virginia. I love that place. Um, it's crazy, but I love that place. And I had wonderful memories there. And then people say, well, I heard you went to Oxford. I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah whatever. Let's, talk, let's go back and talk about UVA. And, um, and Lawrence, I just don't understand why you don't sort of revel more in, in why um, you uh, went to Oxford. You know, that's something to, to be proud of. Uh, but when I reflect upon it, I realize that that's because uh, there's a part of me that feels like I really worked hard to get into the University of Virginia. Um, but uh, I can honestly say that there is no way on earth that I should have gotten into Oxford. And there's not. Um, uh, and so there's nothing for me really to boast in. There's really nothing for me to boast in about going to Oxford because I can say that it has to be uh, from the Lord, and, and I, I'm content in that. But the, the things that I feel like I've got a little bit of leverage in, that I've got a foothold in, uh, those are the things that I tend to be the most, 
that I like to talk a lot about um, because I have this crazy idea that I think that I did it. But the fact of the matter is, is that regardless of what I think, God made both of those things happen. Right? Uh, it's just as ridiculous. You know, we were talking last night about gender determination amongst your children and um, how a lot of people think that they can determine what gender their child is going to be by you know, looking at some Chinese zodiac calendar or whatever it is, and um, the moon cycle. Um, and, uh, and it's about like that. Right? We don't, we don't have, we, we're just happy to have these beautiful children that, that have come alongside us, and, um, and, and this is the Lord's doing and is great in our eyes. And that's the principle that God is trying to impress not only on Gideon but on all of our lives, that everything that you have is from the Lord. And the moment, uh, the moment that you think that in your striving uh, you have been able to do it, some people put their trust in horses, some people put their trust in chariots, but I will put my trust in the Lord. Uh, the moment that you think that you've got it, God has a tendency to start pulling those things away from you. He knocks your army down by two-thirds. Uh, he knocks you down to 300. And had this army gotten even more full of itself, um, he might have just sent Gideon alone into battle. And to illustrate this even further, um, God has a dinner roll attack the camp of Midian. Now, that same night, God says to Gideon, says to the Lord, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number, as the sand is on the seashore in abundance." When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade, and he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. Is this not the funniest thing you've ever heard? Like a loaf of Wonder Bread ah, just comes tumbling in. Like, it's like I had a dream last night that a, di- that a crescent roll destroyed our house. Like, like, right? I had the burrito. Um, you know, whoa. Uh, so God... And uh, the guard... Um, I mean, they know that the, the, the Israelite armies are amassing and they're getting... I mean, even if you are the great military force, if you're a sentry and you're in an outpost, you're low of the low and you're probably a chicken... And, uh, and you're out there talking, and this guy immediately interprets the dream, this Midianite, and says, uh, this, is, this is Israel. This is Israel. Now, a couple things. <clears throat> in the struggle of Gideon, and in our struggles too, God meets you where you are. He's done this with Gideon all through, and he does it with you. Gideon is afraid. He doesn't say to Gideon, come on, dude, you know, get with it, you know, Gird up your loins. Get ready. You know, don't be such a chicken. Uh, but he says, you know what? Go down to the camp. And if you're still chicken to go down to the camp, he doesn't say it that way, but if you're still afraid to go down to the camp, take your servant with you. I talk about, you know, I mean, he's, uh, look, I'm, I'm going to give you some, some room here to, to trust me, to trust me in this. And he goes down and he overhears this uh, amazing uh, story about the barley loaf. Now, there is another story uh, in the scriptures where a barley loaf plays uh, a significant role, and that's Jesus' feeding of the 5,000. Remember the little boy? He had the barley loaves right, in his sack lunch. The barley loaf is the worst bread that you could possibly get. 
right? It's almost not even edible by human beings. Remember Samuel Johnson wrote the very funny quote? He said he had a, Samuel Johnson's famous dictionary, and if you look it up even to this day, uh, if you look up oatmeal uh, or oats, it says um, eaten by people in Scotland and by animals in England. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and I'm Scottish, and I think that's funny. So... Like that's kind of how people looked at barley loaves is that they were just disgusting and, and you, only, you only ate a barley loaf if there was nothing else to eat. That was it. And again, here's this principle of the lowest of the low, that which is totally ridiculous, a killer dinner roll uh, that is really not good at all um, and which you think of as the food of peasants or, or very menial, um, you know, rolling into camp. And, and destroying the enemy, that, um, that that's the means by which God is going to do. And I'll, I'll leave it to you all to, to read uh, how God actually does this. It's, um, it's pretty uh, amazing. They're able to dupe the Midianites into thinking that they're numbered in the thousands, and they attack at night, and the Midianites and the Amalekites just kill one another thinking that they're the enemy. Um, and it involves um, flashlights, not real flashlights, but you... Anyway, I hope I piqued your interest. You can look at it. Uh, Judges chapter uh, 7. Um, but again, here's this barley principle or this dirt principle or this Nazareth principle that comes uh, through all of scriptures that God takes that which is weak and lowly in the world uh, to shame the strong uh, and the proud. And uh, all of this is so that the people of Israel can say, it's the hand of the Lord that has saved us and it is not our doing. It's not our doing. And what this does, hopefully, in our lives and in the lives of the people of Israel, is it creates complete and total dependence upon the Lord. That's the idea, uh, that everything that we have uh, comes from the Lord. And if you think about it that way, that means that everything you, that you're a steward of what you have and everything that you have, if it belongs to the Lord, when you lose it, it doesn't seem like that big a deal. Right? When, now, it does for certain things. It's still hurtful and painful. And the things that, that you lose that, um, that are hurtful and painful are the things that you feel like you deserve or have earned. Like all the money in the bank. Wait a minute, that's, that's something that... Um, I heard the funniest statistic. I heard these stupid statistics lately that are just stating the obvious uh, from NPR. And they said um, yesterday that people are, are willing to pay taxes if they think that it's fair. People are willing to pay their taxes if they feel like it's fair. If they don't think it's fair, they'll find a way to get out of whatever tax it is. That, and I thought, okay, you know, that's, that's true. Uh, but um, why, I thought, well, why would they think that it's unfair? Well, they think that it's unfair because they feel like what the government is asking them is an assault on what they've actually earned, right? That that's theirs, and, and you can have this, uh, but not this. Uh, but thank God um, that God is not the United States government. Um, but uh, in, the, in another way, he actually is demanding more that not just this percentage of your income or whatever it is that you have to pay, but everything that you own uh, belongs to me and I've given it to you. And the fact of the matter is I want to give it to you. I want to bless you. I want to preserve you. I want to make you a, a people uh, of joy uh, because when you realize that everything comes from the Lord, uh, there is so much freedom in that uh, that no longer are you caught up in all of these sort of balls that you have juggling up in the air and trying to figure out what's what, but your real aim and desire and what you need to concentrate on is actually uh, the interaction that's happening between you and the Lord and your trust uh, that he is actually working things out for you for the good.
And that's what he's doing with Gideon here. And so we're all a bunch of walking barley loaves. Uh, But barley loaves that God uses uh, in incredible ways. Um, and uh, you know you can't you can't run away with it run away from it. Uh, I'll close with uh, just to tell you most of y'all know who Mother Teresa is, right? Uh, she's an Albanian nun or was. And um, do you know why she went to India to to um, she left Albania and went to India to to nurse people with the plague? Because when she was in Albania. She was kind of popular. She had a little bit of a following in the convent, and she thought uh, the holy thing to do is for me to run away where no one will ever find me and live a life of obscurity and quietness. And, of course, what happened? That was exactly what God wanted her to do. Uh, That was in his plan uh, all along. Uh, So we can't outrun God, uh, but neither can we outrun God's blessings and God's plan uh, for our life And thankfully, in his mercy, he often thwarts our plans. Uh, In his mercy, doesn't give us over to the judgment, which is letting us have what we want. Questions, comments, concerns? Lauren, do you have anything to add? Critique? Comment? You wish I'd said something differently or or not at all? You're normally very good at this. You normally add something to it. Okay. Anything? Okay, uh, next week uh, we're going to start to get into, uh, right now things are looking really good for Gideon, uh, aren't they? Like everyone's like, oh, I wish that I were Gideon. And next week we're going to see dark Gideon. Uh, and then the week after that, really, really dark uh, Gideon. Uh, because things go really wrong uh, in Gideon's life, and it's very sad. Um, and uh, and uh, as I said before, I see a lot of his traits uh, in me. Um, but don't worry, I won't be, you know, knocking on your door with a band of roving armies or anything like that saying, ah! But, um, but nonetheless, uh, it manifests itself in different ways, but the same altogether. Okay, let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word, and Lord, we thank you for Gideon. Lord, that we would have this barley loaf principle uh, sunk deep in our hearts. And Lord, we thank you for your mercy that you don't give us over to ourselves. But Lord, uh, when you do, that we would see the error of our ways, that we would repent and return to you uh, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, you want to give us so many good things, but we have our own plans in life. Uh, But Lord, that you would uh, provide for us, that we would know that uh, every good gift that we have comes down from heaven and how much more you want to bless us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.